I wonder if you've ever had the thought after doing something that, that you, you thought could be seen as sin. I wonder if you've ever said these words to, these, to yourself. Well, it's not that bad. I didn't kill anyone. I didn't, I didn't cheat on my, my spouse. Or, or, or I didn't hurt anyone. It's just something that was personal. Or it's not as bad as that person's sin over there. Their sin, compared to mine... Is way worse. And I wonder this today because our passage is full of opportunities for you to do this. Maybe you've already done it as you've sat there and listened to the reading. Maybe you turned your nose up at the gay men we see in verse 5. Maybe you were enraged at Lot's apparent stupidity in verse 8 when he decides to come up with the scheme to give his daughters up. Maybe you thought yourself a little bit more mature and wiser and a little bit more clever than Lot's wife in verse 26. Or maybe you were disgusted at the acts of Lot's daughters in verses 30 through 38. Whatever your reactions may have been, I would urge you to hold them lightly. Because you may find yourself relating to some of these characters in our text today, more than you like, or more than you even know, I would say. So three ways I want us to look at the text this morning to bring this point out and leave us hoping, I hope, in God Almighty at the very end. One is the reality of God's judgment. Two is the strong influence of the world. And then three is the preservation of the righteous. The reality of God's judgment, the strong influence of the world, and the preservation of the righteous. So first, the reality of God's judgment in verses 1 through 14. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament uh, portrays God as the righteous judge. So as we learned last week, we, we, uh, he holds both individuals and nations accountable for their actions. He is perfectly right and he's perfectly just. He is consistent to his character. He's consistent to his righteousness. He never changes. He isn't indifferent towards sin, nor does he ignore sin, both from the smallest to the greatest. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10 says this, Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. And here in chapter 19, we see this thunder of God's judgment once again. Now this is not the first time we've seen God's judgment in in the Bible uh, upon the evil of the world. If you just simply think back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, the first judgment of creation comes to the serpent. See that? And then Genesis chapter 4, the judgment of Cain, who kills his brother. Genesis chapter 6 is the judgment of the entire world through a flood. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. And then Exodus, Pharaoh, and all of Egypt. And then you can just continue to walk through the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And you see this throughout the Bible. That God is a righteous judge. Yet the flood 
of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah particularly are mentioned the most in the New Testament. So in 2 Peter 2, I think we read this last week in our scripture reading, and then in Jude's epistle that we'll read here in just a second, both write words concerning the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah and what example Sodom and Gomorrah hold for us. So they're comparing our lives with that of Sodom and Gomorrah. So in the text read for us from Luke 17 this morning, Jesus uses the judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah to point to the future day of judgment that will be for everyone. Jesus says, But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. A day of judgment. So Sodom and Gomorrah, as, as bad as we think it is, as wicked as we think this is, as, 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 as mean as we think God's devastating power upon this city, upon human beings is, Sodom and Gomorrah is but a shadow of the things to come. So it reminds all of us that judgment is not just for those over there, which is what we really, really like, but for every one of us. And the only way that we are saved from it is if God intervenes, is if God enters into the world on our behalf. Jesus' own words in John 5, just, be, just in case you think, maybe you think, oh, well, God, is, God is, a, is a judge in the Old Testament, and you don't really see that in the New Testament. Let me read for you John 5, Jesus' own words. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That all, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The only way, Jesus says, to escape judgment, the judgment of God, is to be found in Christ. And so we'll see this in our text this morning because as, as we turn our attention to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, we'll, we'll see just how real God's judgment is. So in this scene in chapter 19, we are no longer standing on the mountaintop like we were last, year, last week with God and looking down upon this sinful city. Now the author takes us into the midst of this wicked city. And we begin to notice almost immediately that while there are parallels to Abraham and Lot's interaction with the heavenly visitors, there are also major differences. So the, the, the main one being the messages that Abraham gets and Lot gets. So the message to Abraham is one of promise and hope, even though it's built around this destruction that's about to happen. The message to Lot, on the other hand, is one of judgment and destruction. And in verses 4 through 11, we see why there is such a difference here. And that's demonstrated both from, from Lot's life and the lifestyle of this wicked city. So basically, we're seeing and hearing what God said he saw and heard back in chapter 18, verses 20 through 21. That reads, Then the Lord said, talking to Abraham, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. 
But we're about to know what God saw and what God heard. Because right away in verse 4, we get a taste of the extent of wickedness that has consumed the city and that has caused God to move towards them in judgment. Look at verses 4 and 5. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. So a plain reading of the text shows us that the author especially highlights uh, homosexuality to make his point concerning the wickedness of this city. And we know this because if we follow the cross-references to these verses in, in, in other parts of the Scripture, we find even the New Testament writers uh, highlighting this point um, from Sodom as well. So in Jude, chapter se- or, uh, Jude verse 7, this is one big chapter, for example, uh, says this, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So we do know that this is a sin that's happening within the city gates. And I'm just making that point particularly clear because there are some in our world and in our culture and in churches that will try to say that that's not what is happening here in the city. But the Bible is very clear that that is what is happening in the city. But, Before we jump on the homosexuality is more wicked than all other sins bandwagon, because we might be there already, we also need to know, because of other cross-references, Scripture interprets Scripture, that this is not the only sin that's happening within the city gates. Listen to the prophet Ezekiel, speaking on behalf of God to God's people. It's what prophets do, and he uses Sodom as a comparison to God's people which is pretty devastating. Ezekiel 16, 48 through 50. As I live, declares the Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. So a lot more is happening in the city. But this, I just want to say that this passage doesn't mean, because it's not mentioned, that homosexuality is not a sin. That is not something that, that, that people were wrestling with and struggling with and indulging themselves in. This passage is just saying that there is, there is a different perspective in which we need to look at these things, particularly the sin in our own hearts. So with this understanding of the greater biblical context, we find God telling us what is at the root of homosexuality, but also the many other sins that you and I fall into every single day. But we are no different. In her memoir, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, Rosaria Butterfield, who struggled with the sin of homosexuality before coming to faith in Christ, uh, commentates on both Genesis 19 and Ezekiel 16. And I think what she has to say is, is better than I could say it. But she, she says that, this, that what is at the root of homosexuality and what the progression of sin looks like for all of us is first 
pride, then wealth, or we could say social oppression, then lack of mercy, and then lack of discretion and modesty. So she goes on to write this. Pride combined with wealth leads to idleness because you falsely feel that God just wants you to have fun. If that goes unchecked, then sin will grow into hardness of heart that declares other people's problems no responsibility or care of your own. And if that goes unchecked, we become bold in our sin and feel entitled to live selfish lives fueled by the twin values of our culture, acquiring and achieving. So why anything is called sin is because it goes against God's original design. Any sin that you commit, any sin that you are currently struggling with right now, goes against how God originally designed you. So whenever we speak about homosexuality as a sin, we are referring to the broader biblical teaching concerning human sexuality. So we're asking the question, in this particular instance in, in, in Genesis 19, how did God design his creation? Well, in the beginning, God created them male and female. He designed them specifically. He designed them to, to, to live in a certain way in his creation, which is why we can call something like homosexuality a sin. And we do. But we also have other things in our life as well that, that God, you could look back as well and say, well, how did God design this part of his creation? And we could look to the Bible for that answer and see that we are off of the path that God has called us to as well. Um, I, quoted, I think I quoted Wesley Hill last week, uh, but he's an author and he's a professor, Wesley Hill. But he wrote this in a, also someone who who has struggled with the sin of homosexuality as well before coming to faith in Christ and, and writes brilliantly on the topic. So if you want to read somebody on it, and he's evangelical, solid believer. But he wrote this. He said that homosexuality was not God's original creative intention for humanity, and therefore homosexual practice goes against God's express will for all human beings, especially those who trust in Christ. So looking at verse 4, we see that this was not just a select group of men, but that this sin and the many other sins that Sodom was committing was, was affecting all walks of life. They needed a parenting commissioning service beyond anything that we could put together up here. Because everybody was failing. Verse 4 says, The men of the city... And catch this too, this isn't, just, this isn't just a story, this isn't just an exaggeration to make things seem worse than they are. This is actually what is happening in the city. That the men of the city, both young and old, children and old people, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Or as the CSB translates this, the whole population of Sodom surrounded the house. So from this we learn 
that this was not some roving band of evil men with evil intentions that was kind of putting a stain on Sodom and saying, look at these, look at these evil, wicked men trying to, to practice this evil, uh, wicked act upon these, these, these visitors here and everybody else here is, is innocent. No, this was the heartbeat of the city from the youngest to the oldest. God was not lying when he says to Abraham back in chapter 18 that there are not even ten who are righteous in the city. As we see, there's not even, uh, there's not even two that are righteous in the city. And this is the reason the Lord is destroying them. This is the reason that the Lord is wiping them off the face of the earth. And our second point, we'll see just how strong the influence of the world is. Because this is, because this is the heartbeat of the city, its, it's strong influence, as, we see, as we've seen, has consumed every citizen. Everyone, with the exception of Lot, was corrupt and wicked. There was not one that was innocent uh, amongst those, the 99% there. But even though Lot was considered the, the city's only righteous inhabitant, Lot wasn't immune to its influence. We see this even in his, in his movements again, even in the way that he, he moves his family um, um, towards Sodom. So if you remember back in chapter 13, when Abraham gives Lot his choice of land, he chooses, Lot chooses the best land. He says, that looks like the most fruitful land. That's, that's a place where we can spread out. That's a place where we can be fruitful and multiply. And then in 13, it says, 13.10, it says this, that Lot first looked toward Sodom before choosing the land closest to it. And then in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 13, it says, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley. And then this little detail is added. And moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So one important detail we noted when we were back in, in chapter 13 was that a move to the east was not uh, a mere real estate decision for Lot. A move east, biblically speaking, signified a move away from God. So we see Lot move toward this wicked city. First, first living close by, and then to actually living in Sodom in chapter 14, verse 12, to then, as 19.1 tells us, Lot is sitting in the gates of this wicked city, which implies he has now taken on some sort of distinction within the city. To, to sit in the gate during this time is, is where the elders, which were the prominent men of the city, sat. So, but this doesn't show Lot's willingness to be God's man in the wicked city. Rather, it shows the opposite. It, it, it shows that the intrigue and allurement of the city uh, that started with a glance by Lot has now wrapped him up in its web. So much so that he's sitting at the city gates with all of these other wicked leaders. 
Now, gaining, sin, uh, gaining influence in a sinful city could be a good thing. I think it's something that we should pursue and have more of. But nothing in the text indicates that Lot was interested in reforming the city for the kingdom of God. It doesn't tell us anything about that. Lot was, was being more influenced by the city than he was influencing it. So we see it in his own actions. When those who would want to take advantage of these visitors, Lot's solution is not to rebuke them and even, even put up a fight against them, but to give this hostile mob, this sex-crazed mob, his two daughters. To give up the, the protection of his family. So we can already see that the, that the strong influence of the city has affected Lot so much that he is willing to give up even those closest to him to be killed. As one commentator described it, he said, uh, he said Lot's moving to Sodom uh, would be like a Christian moving into a brothel or, or in a business run by the mafia. It was no place for a righteous man to be. Because eventually the web will wrap you up as well. Think about how easy it is for us to cheer on our favorite characters in movies and TV shows, um, reality TV shows even, who are involved in and endorse blatant sinful behavior. Or to affirm a friend or a family member in their sinful choices simply because you love them and you want to see them happy. Behavior that we would never engage in or endorse in our own lives, we find ourselves kind of getting wrapped up in what the world sees as okay. Think about how easily swayed your views are according to where your favorite politician or political party lands on a particular issue, even if it goes against what the Bible says. Think about those authors you may read or the podcasts you listen to, and you say, oh, I'm going to listen to this, these, these, these people with an open mind, but with little discernment from God's Word. They begin to slowly chip away at what you believe. The reality is, the ways of sin are subtle. As Rosaria Butterfield was making her point that I read earlier. We don't just arrive at certain sins overnight. It's subtle. It chips away at what we believe. So it starts, like Lot, it starts with a look, and it ends with you endorsing it in its gates. As Psalm 1 tells us in its first verse, and I know some of the ladies are studying the Psalms right now, and so I was reminded of this from their study. I wasn't in the study. My wife told me. But as Psalm 1 tells us in its first verse, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. These, the psalmist later calls, the chaff that the wind drives away. And Lot was well on his way to getting blown away, literally. He, he has to be forcibly removed from the city by the angels. Look at verses 15 through 16. It says, But he lingered 
After this warning, but he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away or blown away. So this we know is an act of God's mercy because the author very clearly tells us this in the midst of Lot's buffoonery. The Lord being merciful to him. These angelic beings grab him by, literally grab them by the hand and escort them, throw them out of the city and give them this warning. God did not have to save Lot. It was the Lord being merciful to him. Yet it's here in the salvation of Lot that we, that we catch a glimpse of God's grace that we, that we see that he's, he's committed to the, the preservation of the righteous one, that God is, is committed to preserving his righteous ones. Not because of anything they've done. Lot's actions make that perfectly clear to us, but according to his promises to us. Look at verses 23 through 26. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now realize our, our last point is, is titled the, the Preservation of the Righteous. And we do see that happening right here in verses 23 and 24. Lot is saved. Uh, he's allowed to go to this little town of Zoar. I mean, the one that he suggests instead of going to the mountains where uh, these angels from heaven tell him to go. It seems like the right where the place to go. But he instead chooses this smaller city. He thinks he'd be safer there. And it's then, it's then... When, a, when, when, when Lot and his family reach Zoar, it's then that the Lord rains down upon Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire. But we, have, but we have to learn the lesson of Lot's wife here in verse 26. can't just skim over that. That even though she was physically escorted out by heavenly beings, so you know this is serious when an angel is escorting you out of a place and, and has heard the warning of judgment and destruction upon this evil city and been told in verse 17 explicitly, do not look back. She looks back. And just as her husband looked toward Sodom in, in chapter 13, she looks back toward Sodom here in chapter 19. Her longings, her heart is there. And that's where she wants to be. And the text tells us she turned into a pillar of salt. Or as one commentator put it, a monument to disobedience. Because she turns her back to God's gracious and merciful rescue. Looking ahead to the New Testament, Jesus uses this very moment as an illustration in the text that Dre read for us earlier in Luke 17 to show how we are not to respond to judgment, specifically the final judgment to come that Jesus speaks of here. This, this is a call for wholehearted obedience to the Lord's 
commands. This, you could say this is similar to, to what the angels were doing with Lot and his family when he was saying, flee from the wrath to come. This whole place is going to be destroyed. In verse 32 of Luke 17, Jesus tells us what he means. He says, whoever, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So to say it another way, whoever seeks to preserve his life on his own efforts will actually end up losing his life. His preservation efforts will come to nothing. But whoever allows Jesus to preserve his life, that is what will last. Because your life is not kept by yourself. It cannot be kept by yourself. But only by him. Because it's only in the righteousness of Christ where we are safe from God's judgment. We see this in Lot's own life because I know I can't be the only one thinking, how does Peter get off calling Lot righteous in 2 Peter chapter 2? I had that question all week to the point where I was like, there there must be some other explanation here. He must mean something different than the righteousness of God here when Peter calls Lot righteous Lot. Because he seems like a blundering idiot who has no redeeming qualities about him. But let's go back to Genesis chapter 19, verses 27 through 29. That little section there. And Abraham went out, went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. So he's back at the mountain. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So here Abraham uh, uh, enters briefly back into the story here. He's nowhere else in chapter 19 except in these few verses here because the author of Genesis wants us to see something. And he wants us to see What he wants us to see is that Lot is essentially saved based upon the righteousness of another. So listen to verse 29 again. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out, out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So, I'll explain this here in a second. But verse 29, just to answer your question from earlier, verse 29 is why Peter calls Lot righteous. That's why he can say righteous Lot with confidence. But what this, does, what this doesn't mean is that Abraham's righteousness is somehow imputed to Lot. That's not possible. That's not a biblical idea. Just like it's not possible, possible for you to become a Christian uh, or be a Christian because your wife is a Christian or your mom or dad is a Christian it isn't, their Christianity doesn't impute into you. You are not given it just because you were born in their household or because you're married to them. No, Lot was righteous because of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Two reasons from the text we can say this. One, remembering back to Abraham's petition in chapter 18, you remember that, that kind of, funny slash uh, terrifying back and forth that Abraham uh, has with God where he's petitioning on behalf of the righteous in this wicked city. 
So he's, he's telling, asking God to save the righteous in the city. And here, here is where we see in chapter 19, God is answering that petition on Abraham's behalf. God says, you want me to save the righteous? I saved Lot. Lot is the only righteous in the city. He has saved the one righteous person. Righteous Lot. The second reason that God remembered Abraham was by remembering the covenant with Abraham and the promise that, as Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 9, all those of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And that's Lot. That's you. That's me. This is what it means in verse 29 when the author says that God remembered Abraham, he remembered Abraham's prayer to save the righteous. He remembers his covenant that he has with Abraham that will last for generations to come. And he does this in Lot. Now the temptation here is to look at Lot's actions and say the Bible is wrong. There is no way that a man like Lot would, uh, who would move into such a wicked city in the first place and eventually offer his daughters uh, to a sex-crazed mob would be a Christian. And I have to agree, Lot's actions were heinous. They were not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. There's no justification to what he was offering to this mob. Lot would not be a, uh, teaching Sunday school at his local synagogue. And Zoar, he would not be leading the youth group. But thankfully, for you and for I and for me, this is not how God deals with his people. Because we are more like Lot than we would like to admit. It says elsewhere in the Bible that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. I'm sure we are all looking at Lot's outward appearance. I don't think any of us, I can probably say with confidence, we're really looking at Lot's heart in the matter. And Peter's testimony in his epistle gives evidence to this, so we cross-referencing again to what was going on in Lot's heart. That he was, Peter says, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as the righteous man lived among them day after day, He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Speaking about Lot there. This is the result of someone who has been changed by the grace and mercy of God. Sin is repulsive to him. Even if he doesn't fully know how to to articulate this with his actions, even if he doesn't fully know how how to live the gospel out just yet, so also when the angels tell Lot, another, another uh, evidence of, of, of Lot's righteousness, also when the angels tell Lot, hey, hey, is there anyone else in the city? Is there anyone else, sons-in-law, daughters, anybody that you want us to save? You need to go and tell these people. And Lot goes and, and goes after his son. They don't listen to him, but he goes and he tells him, this is what God is going to do. God is going to destroy this city. So he believes and knows God to be this righteous judge. That God will do what he says 
he will do. And he's saved, physically and spiritually. Lot is saved by God. This means that no matter the depth of your sin, you are not beyond saving. No matter how badly you think you've blown it, God can and does redeem you. So brother or sister, if you think you've blown it beyond repair, remember that like Lot, you also have been declared righteous. Not because of anything you've done, but because of the righteousness of another, namely his son, Jesus Christ. And those of you who are here who have not yet been declared righteous, the good news is the Bible says that you can be. That there is, there is, no, there is nothing that blocks you from being declared righteous like Lot. And you can do this by trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Being found in him. By uniting yourself to the true and righteous one. Now that would be a good place for me to say amen. And stop and pray. And I wish I could. But I can't leave you at verse 29. We have to go beyond. And this is not going to be that long. So... um, because that's a, verse 29 leaves us off at really good news. That you can be saved in Christ, that you can be redeemed from, uh, and safe from the, the wrath to come, God's wrath to come, and you can be safe in Christ. But we can't stop there. Because there's this ellipses almost of verses 30 through 38. And I say ellipses because hanging on at the end here is, is let's just call it what it is, a, a very weird and very disturbing scene between Lot and his daughters. It's an account of incest. Now, to Lot's daughters' credit, they thought this was the end of the world. They thought this is it. It is only us and our father, and they knew the customs of the land. They needed to have an offspring so that they could carry on the family name. And so the way in which they set about to do this is, hey, let's get our dad drunk, and then I'll go in and lay with him, and then tomorrow we'll do the same thing, and you'll go in and lay with him. And that's what they did. That was their plan. So, so one detail that you may not be aware of is that the children that come from this scene become two nations. So it goes back to the promise that, that God has to Abraham, that, that nations will come out of his line, the nations will come out of his line, so this is something that's coming true here. But more importantly, these two nations uh, eventually become, ironically, the enemy of God's people. Both of them. So you can see that, that, that while the wicked have been judged in Sodom, there is still the existence of wickedness in the world even through one that God has just shown great mercy to, this man Lot. So what does this strange bit of the narrative tell us? Well, it tells us that even after the the destruction of Sodom, the mentality and heart of Sodom remains in the people. As one writer said, Sodom was reborn in the cave. So it's a reminder... In this part of the story of God, 
that still the snake crusher has not come. The promised Messiah has not yet arrived on the scene. That the sin of Adam still runs rampant then, and it still runs rampant now. Which means that rescue is still needed. Now I'll close by reading Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 5 that offers us this great hope that rescue has come for us in Christ. Christ has already come. He has accomplished uh, uh, salvation on the cross. He has died for our sins. He rose again so that we might have a relationship and be at peace with God Almighty. And that is the only way that that happens is through Christ. But we also live in this kind of already not yet reality. That even though Christ has come and conquered Satan's sin and death, that we still live in a broken, sinful world. And you know that not because of the person's sin sitting next to you, but because of what's going on inside your own hearts. So this is what John says in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. And we'll close with this. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was is, who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for these true and trustworthy words. That even though we, are, we had to walk through this uh, broken, wicked, disgusting situation in Genesis chapter 19, um, and looking at it just from afar and just saying that those are people over there, we, we had to, to be uh, real with that, that, that wickedness, that disgust that we feel, that sin that is present is in our own, own hearts as well. And so, God, we are, we are thankful for what you have done for us in Christ and making a way for us to come back to you, to come back into the holy presence of God to, to, so that you would have your dwelling again amongst your people. You sent Jesus so that his body might be broken, that his blood might be poured out, so that we might um, receive that and enter back into this peaceful relationship with you. And so, God, I pray for my friends that are here today who have not yet uh, received that sort of uh, forgiveness, that they would seek that today, that they would be reminded of the words that, uh, that today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. God, I pray for those of us who have, who have believed for a long time, and maybe we're like Lot or maybe we're like Abraham, but we are still in need of your saving work in our life. So help us never to think that we've arrived or to think that we've done all of the good deeds that we need to do and that we're good to go, but that we would be faithful to the end. That we would be able to stand alongside Jesus as he comes and makes all things new in heaven and on earth. We pray in his name.
Amen. <clears throat> so if you're visiting with us, uh, celebrating the Lord's